Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, brothers and sisters, we'll be continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time in a time of prayer. O Father, it is a great comfort for us to know that you are with us in all of our trials, and that even as you delivered the Lord Jesus Christ when he was a very, very young child from danger, so you do in our own lives. We're thankful, O Lord, that you have delivered us from the enemies that were too powerful for us, from Satan himself, and that by your grace, through your spirit, there is nothing that can separate us from your love, and ultimately you will bring us to yourself in the end. We do pray that you would be with us during this time, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would use it to build up your people, to give comfort and grace, and that you would help us to submit to it in all that it says to us. For we know, O Lord, that your word has been appointed for our good, that we might be sanctified by it, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. Well, truly, this life is full of many challenges and difficulties. We face many pains and sorrows, tribulations, temptations, things that we go through, and there are no escaping those sorts of things in this life. We all must endure our share of them as from the Lord. And as you go through difficult times, a question that might easily arise or a temptation might come to ask, does Christ really know what you're going through? Does he really get it? It can be very difficult to receive comfort from somebody when they try to comfort you and yet they have experienced nothing of what you have experienced. It's a very difficult thing to receive comfort from that person. And the question then comes with our Savior. Does Jesus know what it is to suffer? Can he identify with us in our sufferings? Is Christ in the category of one who cannot comfort us because he does not know what we are going through? Well, here in this passage, Matthew is showing us not only that Christ in his very turbulent childhood knows what it is to suffer, but even in his sufferings, his sufferings were meant to show that he identifies with his people in them, that Christ identifies with his people in his sufferings. Now, remember where we are in the context. We've been looking at Matthew chapters 1 and 2. We saw last week that uh, the Magi came from the east to bring their gifts to Christ, and that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew is trying to show uh, the people who will be reading his gospel that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And chapters 1 to 4 in particular are his introduction to who Jesus is and what he will do. And even as last week we saw that the Magi coming from the east was a fulfillment of prophecy, so here, even when Christ is persecuted as a young child and really can do nothing for himself at this point as a, as a human, even then, all that happens to him, all the persecutions against him are ultimately a fulfillment of the scriptures, proof that Jesus really is the Christ, and even more than that, that as the Christ, he can identify with us in our sufferings and that he can give us comfort through them. And this is what we see from this particular passage, that Christ identifies with his people and saves them from their sufferings. And this is done in a number of ways, particularly with comparisons between Christ and Israel and Christ and Moses himself. Christ identifies with his people Israel, and he is, in fact, the new Moses. So we'll look at this passage under four headings as we just basically follow uh, the movement of the story as Christ goes to different places. Um, we have first in verses 13 through 15, the flight to Egypt. And particularly what Matthew's emphasizing here is that Christ identifies with his people. So the flight to Egypt, Christ with his people. Second in verses 16 to 18, we'll consider the slaughter of the children. And we have a very interesting hint from Matthew that the suffering of the exile is actually about to end. So that Christ will save his people out of the suffering. Then Christ returned to Israel in verses 19 to 21. We see a comparison to Christ with Moses. And then in verses 22 and 23, the withdrawal to Galilee, that Christ is the Nazarene. So again, the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the children, the return to Israel, and then the withdrawal to Galilee, showing that Christ identifies with his people. And as the new Moses, he saves them out of all of their troubles. 
So look with me again at verses 13 to 15 as we consider how our Lord had to flee from the promised land into Egypt. Now remember the context, as I had mentioned. The Magi have just come to worship Christ. They have just left. And Herod's plan all along has been to kill Christ with the information that he receives from the Magi. As we saw last week, they decided not to go back by that same road. They went back another way, being warned in a dream. And this was, in some sense, a deliverance for Christ, but it was not the the end of the deliverance because, of course, Herod, when he realizes this, is going to become very, very angry. And God, as he continues to, to save his son from his persecutors, not only warns the Magi to flee, and to go back a different way. But even Joseph is warned to flee in verse 13. He's said to take the child and flee to Egypt because Herod's about to seek his life. And Joseph very obediently obeys. He takes the child and through this, God's son is delivered from what would have been a sure death by the hand of Herod. And here we have a great irony that, as we, we, meant, we mentioned that last week, there was a number of ironies that, that are in the text that Matthew uses to draw our attention to spiritual realities. Here's an, another very brief one. Isn't it ironic that the Lord Jesus Christ has to flee from the promised land for safety in Egypt? It's the very opposite of what God's people had to do in the Old Testament. Egypt was the land of slavery and bondage, and they had to flee from Egypt in order to come to the promised land. Here, Matthew is giving another very subtle hint that the promised land has become the new Egypt. It is the place that God's people need to be delivered from. It's the place where there is now the Pharaoh, the tyrant who is seeking to destroy God's people and God's Savior. And notice, though, in verse 15, that when the Lord Jesus Christ is brought back to the promised land, Matthew says that this is actually to fulfill a prophecy that had been made about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. So even as the Lord Jesus Christ is being persecuted, that persecution ends up being a fulfillment of prophecy, showing that the Lord Jesus Christ really is the true Messiah. Now what's going on in Hosea chapter 11? Well, in the context God is actually speaking to Israel, his people, and he's calling Israel God's son in verse 1. And even though God had done so much good for them, as he describes in verses 3 and 4 of Hosea chapter 11, God's people were not good to him, as it says in in verse 2. And because of this, this is just what's going on in Hosea chapter 11, God must send them into exile, but he will eventually call them back and save them. That's an overview of what's happening in Hosea chapter 11. Now, many have looked at that chapter, and they've looked at the way Matthew's using that chapter, and they've said, well, surely Matthew is misusing the scriptures, because Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 is not about the Messiah, and it's not speaking about something that's in the future, but it's rather speaking about God's people, Israel, and it's speaking about something that happened in the past. And so Matthew is is mis using the scriptures. And so that's a question that we have here this this morning. Was Matthew misusing the scriptures when he took a verse that was speaking of God's people in the Old Testament and applied it to Christ as a fulfillment of prophecy? 
Well, the answer is, is of course, no. Matthew was not misusing the scriptures. And if that's the case, then what is being done? What, I, what, I, what Hosea is doing in that chapter and what Matthew is doing in applying that verse to, Ho, to Christ himself is he's drawing a connection between Christ and his people. This is a connection that had already been established in the Old Testament. So it would have been any, any prophet in the Old Testament would have made the same connection. But the point is to show that there is a connection between Christ and his people. That Christ, even in his own personal history, will have a parallel history to the people of God. He must have this history as he identifies with his people. All the things that God's people experienced in their history, he himself experienced it in his own life, even in his very childhood. Think about the way the author to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2, showing the necessity of this very thing. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, he writes this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That is to say, he became like the seed of Abraham to give them aid. He never became like an angel, and so therefore he doesn't help the angels in the same way. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. That is to say, Jesus Christ knows exactly what it is for God's people to go through trials and difficulties and temptations. And even as God's people had to be delivered out of Egypt, so the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered out of Egypt, being saved from a tyrannical king who wanted to kill him, that he might know exactly what it is to suffer in that way, that he might not only save his people from those sufferings, but even comfort them as one who truly understands. And this link between Christ, the Messiah, and his people was already established in the Old Testament, as I mentioned. In Isaiah chapter 49, which is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he is actually called Israel. So the Messiah, one of the names given to the Messiah in the Old Testament is Israel. And then later in that chapter, Israel saves the people of Israel. Now, now how could that be? Well, the, the thinking is that there's such a strong connection between the Messiah and his people that he actually takes their name upon himself. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does, even in his very history. And so out of Egypt, I called my son. The Lord Jesus Christ identifies with his people. But this does not mean the end of problems for the people of God. As we turn to verses 16 to 18, notice how Herod responds. And what is a terrible, terrible tragedy, Herod being a tyrannical king who is paranoid about preserving his own rule, often thinks people are plotting against him when there is no evidence to that, and will do anything in order to keep his power, decides to, decides to uh, have all of the children 
two years and under killed in the area of Bethlehem in order to preserve his rule that the Messiah would be put to death. And so he goes and he has all of these children put to death as we see in verses 16 to 18. And this reminds us again that this life is filled with terrible, terrible tragedies and we ought never to make light of these things. Perhaps you were here this morning and you have gone through terrible tragedies like this. And it can be tempting to think, can God really work these things out for my good? Think about what it would have been like to have been a mother in Bethlehem at that, at that time. To have your, your son die for no apparent reason. You could, you could plead and say, I know my son is not the Messiah, but it would have made no difference. You were minding your own business. You had no thought of trying to seize the throne from Herod. You had no quarrel with him. And yet, in a seemingly senseless act, Herod puts your child to death. Can God really work tragedy like that out for good? Can he really bring good things out of that? Well, notice how Matthew says that this is a fulfillment of, of Scripture, fulfillment of prophecy itself, taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, which we had read uh, the entire passage earlier in this service. Notice he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what's, what's going on here? Now, if you, if you caught the context as we were reading through this passage, you'll see that most of what we read, in fact, this is really the only negative verse in the entire passage. Most of what we read was very, very positive. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was giving hope and comfort to his people. He was saying that even though God's people were in exile, that they were going to go into exile because of their sins, that God would bring them back. Jeremiah chapter 31 is a passage about the return of, from exile. And so it was a time for great comfort and great hope for the people of God. And yet, there would even up to the very moment of God's people returning from exile, even up to that very moment, there would be great suffering. And verse 15 of Jeremiah 31 is actually a description of the weeping of God's people because they were going into exile. And Matthew, by linking the suffering of these of these women who are weeping for their for their children in Bethlehem to the su- to the the suffering and weeping for of God's people when they were going out into exile is giving a very subtle hint that even though this this is a terrible tragedy it actually is the suffering that will happen right before the deliverance there is a there's a very subtle hint as Jeremiah 31 the entire chapter is about return from exile Matthew is saying, there's a, there's a subtle hint that this suffering is the very end of the suffering. That your children dying is the great suffering that will happen before the Messiah himself comes and brings back the people of God out of exile and restores all the things that were lost through that particular tragedy. And so Matthew is giving a theological making a theological connection that's meant to give hope to God's people. And very often this is the case. Very often, God's people end up suffering much immediately before God sends deliverance. Think about the Exodus. When Moses returns from, 
from the wilderness and goes into Egypt, goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Does the situation get better or worse for God's people? At the beginning, it gets much, much worse. Pharaoh doubles the requirements of the labor. He takes away the advantages that he had given to them of giving them straw to make bricks. And the people of God were very upset with Moses for what he had done. There was extra suffering that had to come before the deliverance was actually brought about by God. And here we have the same thing. There is an extra bit of suffering that comes. But Matthew gives the hint that it is, in fact, the end of the suffering for God's people if they will be, if they will be faithful to him and continue to believe in God. And so there is the suffering which the Lord Jesus Christ himself will deliver his people out of. But notice then in verses 19 to 21, there is the return to, to Israel. Herod dies. And Joseph is told in a dream that those who are seeking the life of the child have died. Therefore, go back to the land of Israel and stay there. And so Joseph again obediently returns and the Lord Jesus Christ is saved from his persecutors fully and finally, as Herod has at this point died. Now, what, what's the purpose of narrating this return to Israel? Well, one of the very interesting things about the way in which this angel communicates this message to Joseph is that there's actually a very, very strong allusion to what God told Moses when he called Moses back to Egypt to go and to save his people. Just like here, God appeared to Moses and said, Go, return to Egypt, for those who are seeking your life have died. And the phrase is virtually identical as what we see here. And what Matthew is doing then is he is trying to draw a connection between Christ and Moses. Christ is, in fact, the new Moses. And this is what he's doing by making a very clear allusion to what Moses was told when he himself was persecuted in very similar ways and had to go back to Egypt to free his people from slavery. Notice the connections that are made between Moses and Christ, even in this passage. Moses, like Christ, was also persecuted at birth by a tyrannical king who was fearful for losing his power. And in his day, as a baby, all the the male children were being thrown into the river. Moses was delivered out of the hand of this tyrant. And even in such a way that it would prefigure the way that he himself would lead God's people to safety. He was delivered through the waters just as he would eventually come back and lead God's people through the waters to salvation. And so he, just like Christ, in his childhood, in his personal history, lived through and experienced what his people would experience so that he might be able, as a, a good and faithful leader, as a savior for his people, that he might, be, might save them and be willing, be able to identify with them in their sufferings. All these things are just like the Lord Jesus Christ, persecuted at birth, delivered in his own history, experiences the things that his people would experience. And what what Matthew is indicating then is that Jesus Christ is in fact the new Moses. We are to look for a new exodus from this one who is delivered from death. The Lord Jesus Christ is the prophet 
like Moses who would deliver his people as Moses himself had prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He knows what it is to suffer. He is the one who has experienced it. And now he has come to save his people. And then in verses 22 and 23, we have the narration of the withdrawal into Galilee. So he he flees to Egypt. The children are are killed. He returns to Egypt. But then he, he withdraws to Galilee. And Joseph does this because he hears that Herod's son is reigning in the place of Herod himself. And his son is no better than Herod, and so he becomes fearful. And God does, in fact, tell him in a dream that he ought to to, uh, turn aside to the region of Galilee. And this, Matthew tells us, is a fulfillment of what had been spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, all throughout this passage, Matthew has indicated, both by explicit references to Scripture and by subtle allusions, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that had been promised in the prophets, and he is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. Here we have a quotation that is very, very difficult to understand. He shall be called a Nazarene. What does that mean? And where in the scriptures is Matthew pulling this from? Well, actually, it's it's very difficult to say, and it seems that nobody really knows for sure. There is not a particular Old Testament prophecy that uses this exact language. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew actually appears to be quoting something general, not a particular place. And all the other places where he quotes scripture, he says that it's, it's given by a particular prophet, one in the singular. Here, he says this is something generally said by the prophets. It's said by more than one, which was spoken by the prophets, plural. He shall be called a Nazarene. And commentators have different ideas about what this refers to. And there are, there are good ideas, but one of the things that this reminds us of as we read our Bibles is that there are difficult things in the scriptures. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, not all things are equally clear, but the main message of the scriptures is very, very clear. This is an encouragement to all of you when you hit things in the scriptures that are very difficult to just keep reading, to pray that the Lord would give you insight into his word and And eventually you will grow and grow more and more in your understanding of the text and you'll be built up in grace. When we come to difficult things in the scriptures, it's not a reason to be discouraged. And when we do as well, we ought not to think that the problem is with the text. The problem is with us from our frailty, our sin, and the Lord himself is the one that gives us insight and understanding. And so he shall be called a Nazarene. What are some of the things that are said? Well, it could mean that Christ is holy. The word for uh, Nazarite is very similar to the word for Nazarene. And some people have said, well, perhaps this is saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be set apart like a Nazarite was, like Samson or something. uh, Samson himself, because of his birth, from his birth was a Nazarite. And at his birth, he was called holy as a Nazarite. And so it could be an indication that Christ is holy. It could be a reference to Christ as the coming king or the branch, as it's said in Isaiah chapter 11. The word for branch is also very, very similar to the word uh, Nazareth. And so it could be saying that Christ is this true branch. He's the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. And of course, that is true. It's also very similar to the word crown, which is applied to Christ. 
For instance, in Psalm 89, it's the crown that the king would wear. Also, the crown that the high priest wears in Exodus 29.6. So it should be, it could be considered, uh, Matthew could be indicating that Jesus Christ is the one who would be crowned as both king and priest. And others have said that it simply refers to him as being one who suffers, as Nazareth was a place that was looked down upon by the people of God in that day. And so just as Nazareth was despised, so Christ would be despised. Now, which of these is it? Well, it could be any of them, or it could even be all of them. Perhaps Matthew was giving a, a, general, um, a general statement that could have been taken in many ways. And regardless, all these things are true. Christ is holy. He truly is the branch of Isaiah 11. He is crowned as king and high priest, and he is the suffering one. And what was said by the prophets is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Matthew is showing in this passage is that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the one of whom the prophet said would come and deliver his people from bondage to sin and death and Satan. And by the way that Matthew quotes the scriptures here and applies them to Christ, what we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in some preliminary way, but that his entire life is patterned off of the entire story of the Old Testament. The Exodus was the greatest saving act of God in the Old Testament. It was the thing that all of the other writers of the Old Testament patterned their sayings off of. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of it. He himself has experienced the Exodus in his very life, and he knows how to identify with his people as he saves them out of a bondage which they could not save themselves from. Matthew is indicating that now the new Exodus is here. The Lord Jesus Christ will bring his people out of bondage to sin and slavery. And may God grant that as Christ has become like you and borne your sufferings, that you may be given the grace to be like him, bearing sufferings well, receiving comforted comfort from God, that you might obtain the crown of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he truly does know what it is to suffer, that he himself has experienced an exile and has been brought back out of Egypt, that he might bring us out of our own captivities in this life to sin. We pray that you would grant us the grace to receive his ministry to us, that we would recognize that he does know how to sympathize with us as a merciful and gracious high priest. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us the grace to persevere through all the trials of this life, that we, suffering with him, might also be glorified with him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. 
That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.